A key component of the modern world economy, the chemical industry delivers products and innovations to enhance everyday life. It is also an industry in transformation, where chemical executives and workers are delivering growth and industry-changing advancements while responding to pressures from investors, regulators, and public opinion. Discover how leading companies are approaching these challenges here on The Chemical Show. Join Victoria Meyer, president of Progressio Global and host of The Chemical Show, as she speaks with executives across the industry and learns how they are leading their companies to grow, transform, and push industry boundaries on all frontiers. Here's your host, Victoria Meyer. Hi, I'm Victoria Meyer. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Chemical Show. During the month of April, we're focusing on sustainability and talking to a variety of guests that bring in some different angles on sustainability and chemicals. I have the privilege of speaking with Emily Tipaldo, who is the executive director of U.S. Plastics Pact. Emily has significant experience in plastics, recycling, and materials management at organizations, including the American Chemistry Council, and more recycling before she joined the U.S. Plastics Pack um, as executive director in 2020. Emily, welcome to The Chemical Show. Hi, Victoria. Thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. So what's your origin story? So what got you interested in plastics and recycling and brought you to where you are today? I have a very non-traditional um, career trajectory. I do like talking about it, particularly with students. Because, yeah, it's definitely, if you had asked me 15 years ago where I thought I would be in 2022, this is not what I would have said by any means. I pretend, I guess I shouldn't say pretend, I've learned and relearned a lot of technical things over the years through actual research and osmosis from working with some incredibly smart people in different organizations. But I am a history degree holder and have a master's in international affairs. So at the time when I finished my master's degree, I thought I might go to law school. I thought I would work for a think tank on sort of international policy, kind of wonky political stuff. And then, I mean, world forces happened. Lehman Brothers went under. 2008 happened for me and things changed. And I was through a friend, actually a parent of a friend, made aware of trade organizations, trade associations. And I knew, and I think this is a theme that has carried through to where I am today. I personally feel very passionate about the sort of the expertise and strengths and incredible possibility that exists through business. And also like the the climate that has existed historically in the U.S. sort of supporting innovation and supporting business and enabling it and giving it the freedom to um, to problem solve and to um, look for innovative solutions to things. So that has always really intrigued me. And I knew early on that I wanted to policy, but I didn't want to be a lobbyist, really. I um, wanted some other way to impact 
policy and I didn't know exactly where, but then I saw an opening at the American Chemistry Council in their legal division. I was hired essentially as a paralegal for the association and then kind of quickly moved to their regulatory and technical affairs department. And there I was able to kind of, again, sort of bring together that sweet spot of working with lots of businesses, but not for any particular one, as well as in an environment where you're looking to impact change through policy, both sort of directly and indirectly. And again, getting to know sort of business acumen and different, the ways in which different companies operate and what drives them and what motivates them. And also lots about their particular supply chains, which was really interesting. So the last five or so years at the American Chemistry Council, I worked for their plastics division under the wonderful leadership of Mr. Steve Russell. For those who may know Steve, it was incredible working for both him and Keith Christman. And I was again, sort of given the um, the autonomy to lead the packaging team within the plastics division at the American Chemistry Council, working with you know the big companies in North America who provide materials to the plastic packaging market, as well as learning lots and lots about their supply chains and customers and motivations and demands and why they do things that they do and why decisions are made the way that they are. So that kind of married together with some of the regulatory experience that I gained. I, when I worked on the regulatory side, I did a lot of work on green chemistry and sort of the green chemistry movement that was happening in like the early to mid 2000s around, you know, how do we promote safer chemistries in products that were used and why that was such a big thing. It was around the time that the Toxic Substances Control Act was under reform or like there were lots of discussions going on about TOSCA reform. So there was a lot of activity within the states and I was a lot of carried over in, into my plastics work. And then through a number of different groups and organizations and consultants that I worked with as lead for the plastics division's packaging team, I was introduced into like the world of sustainability, specifically for plastics. And marine debris was becoming a big issue at that point, like was really picking up steam. I had the great experience while at ACC of working with the packaging team to do a natural capital accounting assessment. So looking at if you were to put a true value on like all of the different environmental factors that are impacted or involved in making different decisions about, you know, this is why we're using this packaging for this product. You know, what would that look like in comparison to if you had made other packaging decisions and again, sort of tried to put a true, true cost on it. And that was incredibly eye-opening. I had the wonderful experience of working on what I think of as one of like the fastest moving pieces of legislation through at the federal level, which was the Microbead Free Waters Act of 2015 and working on language for that and coalition building. So again, both from a policy standpoint, looking at what can be done sort of that given agency and 
and business, as well as when businesses really want to and are motivated to make change what they're capable of. So yeah, it was asked, you know, I was approached about joining the PAC as their executive director. I think I bring unique experience to it. Just after the American Chemistry Council and prior to the PACT, I spent um, just under two years with a small mission-driven consulting firm in the plastic recycling space, formerly known as More Recycling, now Stina Inc. But they do, they gather lots of data. They do project management in the US and in Europe and got to know a lot of different players working with them as well. So I'm motivated by making positive change. I don't think it doesn't matter what your political color or affiliation is. I think, you know, we can all agree that we're trying to do better. And like, I was a Girl Scout. So like, leave the place better than you found it for our children or the next generation. And again, I, you know, I think there's lots of opportunity that business has to offer to make some of those really big changes that are needed. Makes sense. So, you know, so it sounds like your, your early career set you up well to join the U.S. Plastics Pack, which you did in 2020. And, you know, I, and from my perspective, it seemed like 2020 was a really, maybe almost a transitional year in sustainability. I mean, all of a sudden, it seems like everyone is talking about sustainability and circularity and all those kinds of topics. So tell us a little bit about U.S. Plastics Pact and what it is and what its mission is. So the pact came together in 2020, the U.S. pact, but we are part of a broader global network. There are 12 pacts globally, and we derive from an effort started by the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. They have a a new plastics economy global commitment that was put together in 2016 or 2017, looking at how do we create globally a circular economy for plastic, specifically plastic packaging. And there are a number of multinationals and other organizations, technology providers that signed on to that global commitment. And then I think they quickly realized, okay, if we're going to meet a global commitment to create a circular economy for plastic packaging, we have to do that in the geographies in which we operate. So or the markets in which we sell product for the consumer goods companies or retailers. And that's where the idea of the plastics packs came from. And it stems from the why of there. We currently have a plastic waste challenge and no one company or organization can fully address that on their own, but they need to be part of this broader collaborative effort to overcome the current waste challenge that we have. Makes sense. And the focus, if I'm correct, is really on packaging. So the not necessarily attacking or not, that's not a great word, but not looking broadly at plastics and plastics usage. It's really about plastics packaging, which I guess as consumers we're interacting with on a regular basis. You're right, Victoria. So it's the focus and scope is packaging, not durable goods. I mean, we definitely, that that's like a whole other can of worms. But again, you know, and plastics, you know, similar to other materials that we use, whether it's for packaging or 
or other durable goods. I mean, we, we have issues in terms of reclaiming all sorts of materials. I think the plastic packaging piece is kind of acutely felt, especially on the, the packaging side, because we do use a lot of plastic for packaging. And then, as you've said, it's what consumers touch and feel. And so then there's a, a sense of, okay, you know, what are we doing with all of this stuff? And does it have any value in the system? I think that brings up another point in terms of the why of the pact, which I talk about a lot and it's not something that's easily overcome, but I would feel as though I was doing a disservice if I didn't mention it is we currently don't have value in the system to create a circular economy for most materials, but especially for plastic. So we are in this dynamic in the US and globally where all the way upstream extractive industries and virgin material manufacturers receive lots of government subsidies for oil and gas exploration, for example, tax credits, benefits, and then all the way downstream in the U.S., it's incredibly cheap to put something in a landfill. And so then what that means is we have this weird economic dynamic of everybody else who's in the middle of the value chain loses out or is in this constant uphill battle to demonstrate value or create value for using recycled content or investing in more infrastructure to process recycled materials or like any of the things because everybody in the middle isn't benefiting from those subsidies that essentially exist on either end of the system. So that's something, you know, that the pact is looking in terms of how do we either from a market-based perspective, create value to build a circular economy or from a policy angle, it's kind of what needs to happen and what do we need to be supportive of again, to help create that value for a circular economy for for packaging. Yeah, I think that's the challenge that I think people have widely, it's understood, at least at a corporate level amongst an association and industry level in terms of, of the challenges and the lack of just frankly, the high degree of fragmentation when you look at the consumer end as it relates to waste disposal, recycling, et cetera. And it's really difficult it's, as a consumer and even somebody, and I feel like I'm a well-educated consumer when it comes to plastics, it's really difficult to know what can be recycled, what cannot. And then it's also really difficult to know that, gee, even if I stick this in my recycle bin, is it actually going to be recycled, reprocessed, used effectively, or is it just going into a landfill. And so I think that's a that's a huge challenge we have. So Emily, I know US Plastic Packs has a wide variety of constituents, which I think you call activators, which cover chemical companies. And I know Eastman and Ineos are part of your activator base, a number of consumer products companies and other groups. So you know you guys have quite an agenda that you've shared publicly. And yet it's really difficult to create alignment and you're touching multiple parts of the value chain. So when you think about kind of who your target audience is as you're really trying to 
create change? Who is it? How do you see this change coming about through the U.S. Plastics Pact? That's a great question. But I think I will land the whomever. And so this could be the, a consumer goods company or a retailer with private label products. You know, whomever is putting products out into the market is really the target audience. And I know there are lots of different considerations and factors from kind of all angles in that. But really, when you think about it, and this is something that I challenge our group, like our broader packed network regularly, you mentioned we call our signatories or our members activators. And that's because, you know, this is kind of a unique organization in you, like the activators, the signatories are the the groups, the entities who will meet our stated goals or targets as we call them. Like I, I'm a mirror facilitator <laughs> in all of this. It's, you know, we're a little, we're different in that it's not like a trade association or even some other research projects or initiatives that are out there where it's like you pay your dues and you show up to some meetings and then consultants or staff go away and do a research project and then come back and present the findings to you. And then you do like a campaign about it. This is way different in that everybody who's joined the pact has shown up and like signed up to this activity knowing that they are signing up to work toward four really aggressive targets on a 2025 aggressive timeline about you know reducing certain things designing for full reusability recyclability or compostability helping to really drive up the national recycling and composting rates and looking to really drive up the use of post-consumer recycled content in plastic packaging. So those four targets or our four goals, really solid foundation for us. So then the question or what I challenge folks with often is in order to help make what is essentially generational change in driving toward these four targets in a in such a short amount of time, it's like you have to be introspective and ask yourself, what is in my control? Because I think for too, too long, too many parts of the plastic packaging value chain have said, oh, it's the consumer. They're just not doing what they're supposed to be doing with it. Or like, oh, we just don't have the infrastructure. Or like, oh, you know, the way that our waste contract is, you know, they're not really inclusive or including all of the things that you really could include in your recycling bin. Like everybody and their brother has been uh, blamed for the system not working. When if you think about, okay, well, who is putting product onto the market and how much, how much power is held in that decision of how you deliver something to your consumers. So really introspectively looking at what is within my control, it may not be easy, it may not be cheap, but there are probably lots of things that are that you could like check those boxes off. And then whatever isn't in your control, what can you do to maybe be a a part of the supporting solution? 
Interesting. So that's good. So that maybe leads us into you've recently, the U.S. Plastics Pack has recently released a list of problematic or unnecessary materials, which I think there's 11 items on the list. And it's actually a mix of both tangible things that are rectally recognized like cutlery and stirrers and straws, and then intangible kind of component aspects. Maybe my first question is really like, how did you guys create that list? And does that list match the list in other countries? So Target One is our first goal that everybody has signed up to in terms of they'll help work toward this on a 2025 timeline is to identify what are problematic or unnecessary materials for plastic packaging and to create a list of those things and work to eliminate them by 2025. The idea being that a couple of things, we won't be able to recycle our way out of the plastic waste challenge that we're in. And there are a number of corroborating data sources that have shown that over the last year or 18 months, the one that most prominently comes to mind is a report called Breaking the Plastic Wave that was done by Pew Charitable Trusts not too long ago, basically saying we we aren't going to recycle our way out of this mess. So what can we reduce? And, And that also brings to mind the US EPA's waste hierarchy with reduction at the very top. So in an effort to create a circular economy for plastic packaging, not everything is going to fit within that vision of a circular economy for plastic um, for a number of different reasons. So we as the PACT developed a, a small team to work on this particular task of identifying you know, what would be considered problematic or unnecessary and definitions and criteria to use to assess materials to, you know, basically say whether or not we thought that these things were problematic or unnecessary for our current system in the U.S. And and do a little bit of hedging or looking at, you know, what what is their trajectory in terms of the 2025 timeline? And do we see these materials or formats or resins kind of maybe becoming circular over the next couple of years or not and why. And so the the small group within the pact, which was representative of the value chain, so we had very balanced voices, uh, did a lot of work looking at publicly available data sources using five criteria that we adapted from some of the global Ellen MacArthur Foundation work that had been done, but did look at it, you know, through kind of a U.S. lens and then came up with a short list. And then we have a longer sort of internal list that we're working on, maybe things that met some of the criteria, but not all of them or or other questions, questionable things that other folks within the PACT raised. And so I would definitely encourage folks if they're interested in that, or there's a corresponding decision tree and more information about the packed scope and definitions and all that good stuff on our website to check out if if folks are interested. So what's been the response, right? So I know you published it a month or two ago, I think it was. What's been the response so far that you guys have 
seen or that your activator and member companies have seen? Yeah, we've been really pleased with the response. And I think I personally feel like we've landed in a good spot. We did have some opposition from completely polar opposite ends of the plastic packaging value chain or opposite ends of the, I don't know, from like an ideological standpoint on plastic packaging, criticism of of polar opposite. So I feel like we've landed somewhere in the middle and are, you had previously asked, you know, is it similar to other lists that are out there? There are some similar things. And I think that is just a testament to there are similar challenges with a number of plastic packaging materials across the globe. Like it's not necessarily unique to the U.S. Some of the things are a little bit different than other places. And I think one example would be the perfluorinated compounds, PFAS, that's listed. We know it's not on, if you're looking at some of the European packed lists, it's not there because it's already regulated in by EFSA and probably REACH as well, like some of the different European regulatory frameworks in terms of including perfluorinated compounds in, in food or other types of contact packaging. Right. And I know there's been a lot of regulatory activity in that space in the U.S. in the last couple of years. Yeah. And so all in all, I think we feel like we've landed in a good place. It also aligns well with some other efforts if folks are following. There's a group called the Consumer Goods Forum, CG. That is another specifically focused on consumer goods companies across the globe and others as well, but just kind of that sector. They have what they call the golden design rules. And within those golden design rules in an attempt to kind of harmonize some of the plastic packaging formats, there are things that they say you shouldn't be using. And so some of those, these things align with that as well. Interesting. So I had a recently had a conversation uh, with a client who makes packaging, uh, not just plastic, they make packaging materials. And what was interesting about that, they said, and this gets to maybe the behavior of the brands and of the, the people that are buying some of these packaging materials, that you know, they recognize the need to make some shifts in material choices. And yet, what seems to be the case is when you say, well, are you willing to pay more money? Um, the answer has been no. And hey, we can go source these, these raw materials that fit some of these standards around compostability or recycled percentages that, that you guys have targeted and others have targeted. And the answer is, well, you know, nobody's, our customers aren't really asking for it yet. So just hang on. And so I think uh, to me, that seems to be one of the challenges is really, again, alignment across the value chain, right? So we've U.S. Plastics Pack, others, consumer products companies, chemical companies, plastics companies have set some very strong targets and goals. And yet there's a bit of a chicken and an egg scenario at times it feels like in terms of, okay, well, we're ready, but are you ready? Well, I'm not ready to do this change. And so, and as you know, and I know certainly, and and people across the industry know, you can't actually snap your fingers and everything's going to magically change overnight. There has to be kind of a development process. You have to just start slowly and and it will ramp up and it's going to have to ramp up quickly. So I think to me, that seems to be, it's a value chain challenge, right? That people recognize the need to make some of these changes have stated 
the intent to do so, but kind of are not ready yet. And it's not fully clear when they will be ready to make some of those changes. Yes. Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a value chain challenge and it's a value chain challenge because going back to the point that I made earlier, because there's not value, there's not the return on investment for making some of these changes right now. We don't have the value in the system for creating a circular e- economy totally yet. Thing, things are happening that are, I think, making some of those changes. So we're seeing greater value like activist shareholders and shareholder resolutions for publicly traded companies are, are making some really big companies make different choices. ESG reporting. And I know there's a, I think, a recent proposed rule on the table within the SEC to look at including more SEC metrics around environmental and sustainability goals. And so, yeah, it really comes back to that value piece. And that's where certainly, especially publicly traded ones, I'll wager to say, you know, it's risky, like stepping out on a limb when you're, you and your leadership are operating within the confines of like quarterly returns and you have lots of competitors. So it's, it's hard to step out on a limb and either eat costs because you want to use more recycled content and you know for a while that you're not going to break even or yeah, figuring out how you begin to make those changes. And that's why I think you see companies make changes sort of in niche areas or specific brands, like kind of one at a time and it it enables them to pressure test. But I think we need to get, again, we need to provide those value mechanisms for really pushing change in a bigger way so that it is more comfortable for folks. I think I get, I get nervous. I don't know if any of your listeners or if you followed this, but something that really kind of sticks out to me and again, around this value creation piece is a year ago, Danone, so big, you know, French-based consumer goods company, people know them, Dan in here, and chairman at the time was essentially ousted by activist shareholders when he had like a really driven environmental and kind of social effort within the company to drive results on ESG metric across their different portfolios and and markets. And but he again in the midst of really trying to to push that within the company, I know from other other areas where, for example, and this is where where like the brass tax comes into play, where in certain markets, Danone's procurement folks, so those who are looking at what materials are we using and buying for our packaging, were direct their performance was directly tied to their sustainability goals. So it's not just about driving down to cost option to get the performance that we need. It's about, you know, are we also meeting these other metrics? And so that changed their decision-making process. Whereas in other parts of the world, the procurement team's performance was not tied to sustainability and therefore like the lowest price is going to win every time for the material. It is interesting. So in fact, that in some ways ties into my next question, which is around the consumer, right? So it seems like consumer education is a necessary part of the agenda. At times, some of the 
you know, I'm going to say, quote unquote, sustainable choices, sustainable packaging. It's a bit of a, I'll just say it's a rich person opportunity, right? You know, like, okay, you know, if I'm going to go buy the high end cosmetics or, you know, skincare, whatever, of course I expect it to be in a more sustainable, I'm going to, I'm willing to pay the extra money for the packaging, but frankly, I'm already paying the extra money for the packaging. And yet, you know, when I think about taking it down across all people, everybody across the US, everybody across the globe is not willing to pay more. When they look at a product on the shelf and say, oh, product A, it's from one of these, you know, activators that's on your list and it's got a high level of post-transumer recycled material or some other standard, but hey, I've got this cheap and cheerful product that it seems to do the same thing, but it's getting heck imported in from someplace else, perhaps that has different standards. Consumers don't know. They don't under some, a segment of consumers know, but a large segment that does, does not. So what's the agenda? How are, are you guys participating in this in terms of the changing consumer behaviors, educating consumers on this? Because we can make all this great progress from a U.S. perspective across the value chain. But if the consumers don't recognize it and they have a choice from component of the value chain that's not following the same standards, they may make that choice. I mean, this, do you see that? Because it's a bit of a dilemma, I think, that a lot of companies face. And frankly, I'm not sure that anyone truly knows how to address it. But what are you guys talking about? And what do you see about how to address that? Yeah, you raise a number of good issues there. So one thing quickly that popped to mind. So we are also looking at, so our priorities really within the pact are looking at reduction, reuse, and recycling, and then to a lesser extent, composting and compostability. And on the reuse piece, I know what you're raising about, is it accessible to like sort of all socioeconomic levels and demographics or not um, is, is real and something that companies are working through because there are a couple of of reuse platforms that exist. Some are definitely cost prohibitive, whereas um, there are others out there that have been created some of the more like refill models to be more accessible and more about like you, you refill your package and buy the amount of product that you want and that you need at any given time. So that's a conversation that's happening there. The one around consumers is an interesting one. So they are not our primary audience, but we do have a couple of activities and things that we've outlined in our our roadmap that we put together around consumers. We also, because we're on such a short timeline with our, our goals and targets. It is a very short timeline. It's right around the corner. Yeah. We know we have to work with other existing efforts and are not looking to duplicate anything. So there's a lot of good work going on with the recycling partnership in the US and some other organizations, Sustainable Packaging Coalition, um, Closed Loop Partners. I'm I'm probably leaving out some, but around that touch on consumer pieces and better understanding consumer education. As well as, I mean, a lot of the consumer goods companies have tons, they have tons and tons of marketing data. And so we're trying to see, you know, in a pre-competitive way, like what can we delve into to better understand 
I think it's kind of a twofold question. So whereas we're looking to work with others to better understand and communicate with, we are again looking more from our little bit more upstream vantage point of, okay, what is within our control to simplify this? Because to think that we can just, again, continue to do the same things that we're doing and, oh, if we just only educated people better. No, like people need things to be as simple as humanly possible. And that may mean kind of simplifying the types of packaging that are put onto the market. And again, that gets back to like, what is the vision for the circular economy and what fits into that and what what doesn't? That's one question. Or simplifying the technology, like from a material recovery facility standpoint and a reprocessing infrastructure, either simplifying or harmonizing that infrastructure so that, you know, generally speaking across the board in the U.S., you know that this particular package will be handled properly when you put it in your recycling bin because there's a standard level of capability to, you know, to handle, to sort and collect and so on. So some of that stuff definitely needs like the simplification. And I know harmonization is kind of a tough word for the U.S., (laughs) but I, I mean it in like the most positive way of, in order to cut out a lot of the confusion, we, we need streamlining of things, whether it's, again, product and package design or the infrastructure that we have. I mean, I don't think it's fair to put it all on, on product design, but also on the infrastructure. Absolutely. And I think your point is, is well taken that controlling the things that you can control is, is critical and, and taking action on the things that you can control is critical because it's a very complex, multifaceted topic an issue that that needs a wide variety of groups and companies and individuals to take part in. So that's well done. Okay, so as, as we wrap this up, Emily, what's next for the U.S. Plastics Pact? So you've, you're on an ambitious agenda. Where do you see the rest of 2022 playing out? We have lots of tasks and deliverables. If, if folks are interested in kind of looking at what's on our agenda, I, I do encourage everyone to take a look at our roadmap 2025, which is on our website. We released that last June now, but it it speaks to, you know, we have these four targets. So then what does that mean over the next few years in terms of anticipated outcomes and associated tactics and activities? And so this year we're really looking at, we've done some work around target three, which is the focus on bolstering the national recycling rate, like what sorts of things can we as the U.S. pact do to have an impact on the national recycling rate, looking at some modeling around, you know, if we are going to achieve a 30% by weight average of post-consumer recycled content in plastic packaging, and that's for sort of our, our little cohort within the pact. So, which we think right now is like 5.6 million tons of material. So 30% of that being being PCR, like what does that mean in terms of formats and the required volumes of that? And, and then the whole, the challenge of food contact versus non-food contact. Yeah, that's a whole big challenge as well. So interesting. Well, yeah. Good. No, that's really good. And in fact, the your website is um, linked and will be linked in the show notes and on the blog 
on the webpage for this episode. So people can go to the webpage or to the show notes to, to find the link to learn more about U.S. Plastics Pact. Emily, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really a great conversation and there's a whole lot of depth and a lot of passion I know around this. So I appreciate you sharing that with us today. Thanks so much for, for having me. And yeah, hope everyone gives our, our website a look. Thank you. Awesome. And thank you everyone for um, joining us and listening today to The Chemical Show. Keep listening, keep sharing, keep following and keep liking the podcast and listening to more great episodes. So thank you so much. We've come to the end of today's podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and want to learn more. Simply visit thechemicalshow.com for additional information and helpful resources. Join us again next time here on The Chemical Show with Victoria Meyer.